Hey everyone, welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about non-local consciousness. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Good, man. It's been a great week. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, still not much happening in terms of news. There was one thing that I did want to mention, and it actually involved me. So I think it's, uh, I don't know, somewhat relevant to the show. Skeptic Stephen Greenstreet came out with a video that he put in the New York Post. I guess that's the outlet he works for. It's weird because he doesn't really seem like much of a journalist, especially from what I'm about to say. He creates video content for the New York Post, basically only anti-UFO stuff. He's created documentaries about Lou Elizondo and basically shitting on the entire push for disclosure. He thinks Congress got tricked into passing legislation somehow. And uh, actually, this past week, there was a FOIA release by, I believe it was John Greenwald, where there were like 12 people copied on this email, all DOD uh, inspector general employees of, of the IG office. It said in that email that Lou Elizondo was the director of ATIP. So I guess they fooled Congress and all these top level officials in the inspector general's office, so like the DOD IG office. So I don't know. Stephen has his work cut out for him, convincing these people that it's all just a ruse. And they did actually come out with a uh, IG report on UAP uh, recommending exactly what Lou Elizondo said was a problem. And now this is the recent problem. I think it happened two days ago. He put a video up on the New York Post, which is apparently... Uh, some sort of news outlet, at least they call themselves that, but we all know it's kind of a tabloid. And this video was about how the people pushing for UFO disclosure have created a religion and people are believing in this religion and it's going to turn into some kind of violent thing like uh, Heaven's Gate or some shit. So it's really this heavy, heavy pushback that's been happening the past few weeks, almost a month now. And the problem is, in this specific video, a lot of the sources he used to make his argument that this was turning into a religion was tweets by people in the community. One of those people was me, and all of the tweets that he put in his video were doctored. They were all cut, completely not including any of the context that we were making those tweets about. He essentially posted those as if they were actual tweets when they were edited, and he didn't say anything. There's no punctuation at the end. It, it seems almost too obvious. He took literally the first quarter of my tweet and put it up there, and there's so much context in that other part of the tweet that it's just so disingenuous and blatant that I don't really know how he can have any sort of credibility at all in the media anymore, especially with Sean Kirkpatrick citing his videos in his recent op-ed. This video had lies in it, fake tweets that he edited. I don't know, man, that just kind of really pissed me off this week. And I think it just generally demonstrates how, how much bad faith is being put forward by a lot of these skeptical voices. Yeah, especially this one who has the gall to say anything about people being in a cult when he's personally supported QAnon and that conspiracy. That in and of itself is a black eye on our country's history. So many people can get duped because bozos like Stephen Greenstreet are telling them that everyone is in on this giant conspiracy. I think the New York Post sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't think anybody takes him seriously anymore. He he shows that he has a clear bias. I'm just saying broadly across the spectrum, these are the kind of people that are being the most vocal against disclosure. Yeah, I just think people should be aware of those kind of tactics and just how disingenuous 
they can be. Just because people are taking the position that's been the status quo for decades doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're, they're smarter or have more integrity or anything like that. It's actually easier to take that position. You start to wonder who, who are the conspiracy theorists really when they have to doctor tweets to fucking make their point. That was your weekly Stephen Greenstreet's an asshole segment. Yeah, let's move on, man. So I found a paper uh, written by Dr. Edgar Mitchell. I think this episode will be a bit of a continuation of last week's because uh, I did a little more research into Edgar Mitchell's work based on the emails that we talked about and the <laughs> kind of crazy shit that he was telling, you know, the White House back in, I guess, 2014, 2015. And I just wanted to see what he was working on at the time to support the things that he was saying in those emails. Yeah, they had some pretty intense stuff in there. But I did come across a paper that he wrote for the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and it was about spaceflight uh, computing systems. And he was talking about how we haven't gone back to the moon, basically calling the space race a uh, political program, essentially not really a scientific endeavor because we wanted to get there before the Russians, which makes sense. And he made the point that, you know, it's better to have it as a political program than no program at all. And I kind of see a parallel there when it comes to UFOs, like in the kind of points that Lou Elizondo pushes, where this is a national security issue. That's kind of how he convinced Congress to take this seriously and actually do something about it. And, you know, a lot of people complain about the threat narrative and all that. But like, really, that was the only way we were going to get anything like the UAP Disclosure Act. You know, anything like that was not going to come from like, hey, it's aliens, like they're all nice and chill and we should just be friends with non-human intelligence. They're only going to act when they have political cover to do something. Uh, he basically goes on to explain how quantum mechanics can revolutionize space travel and then goes further into talking about certain aspects of quantum mechanics that may have to do with consciousness. I know we've spoken about it before, but like the fact that Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff, a mathematician and an anesthesiologist, were interested in the microtubule in consciousness and are giving a presentation to the Department of Defense at a point in time. What are these guys doing <laughs> giving presentations for RAND? There are military applications for the orc or theory of consciousness, or they were studying it because obviously psychotronic weapons are something that have actually come to the forefront recently with the Havana syndrome and you know what they call neuroweapons. Yeah, speaking of uh, Havana Syndrome, there is an update on the Scott Andrews book. I guess these guys got a little more information on it and uh, published an article on, I guess, February 11th. Yeah, they give a few more details. And so this is what they say is going to be included. And the book's title is The Havana Syndrome, My Undercover Life Fighting America's Secret War Against Russia. And this is what the article says. In his book, Andrews will detail his experiences with Havana Syndrome and his efforts to find out what caused it. He will also write about his time in the Air Force and his work in counterterrorism. Andrews' book is a fascinating and disturbing look at the world of intelligence and the dangers that intelligence officers face. There is some real Manchurian candidate vices going on within this general story frame. The concept of the Manchurian candidate is often associated with the CIA's MKUltra program which was a real government program that aimed to develop techniques for mind control and interrogation during the Cold War era. The MKUltra program was officially launched by the CIA in the 1950s and involved various experiments on human subjects, including the use of drugs like LSD, hypnosis, and other forms of psychological manipulation. While there's no evidence to suggest that the program succeeded in creating actual Manchurian candidates, some of the methods used in the program 
were aimed at creating altered states of consciousness and suggestibility in subjects. The book is scheduled to be published in the fall of 2023. There are many amazing things about the story of Scott Andrews, former U.S. intelligence officer who discovered a hidden past and a mysterious condition. Here are some of them. The story is a blend of thriller, mystery, and sci-fi genres with twists and turns that keep the reader hooked. It involves a secret military program, a classified White House initiative, a CIA doctor, and an advanced energy weapon. The story reveals a fascinating phenomenon known as Havana Syndrome, which affects some of the U.S. diplomats and military personnel who have been exposed to directed energy attacks. The syndrome causes neurological symptoms such as headaches, dizziness, nausea, and hearing loss. The story challenges the conventional notions of memory, identity, and reality, as Andrews tries to uncover the truth about his past and his abilities. He finds out that he was part of a U.S. Air Force program as a child and that he has developed special skills such as remote viewing and healing. The story is based on real events and documents, which add credibility and authenticity to the narrative. Andrews has evidence of his involvement in the U.S. Air Force program, his medical records, and his father's file. He also has testimonies from other witnesses and experts who corroborate his claims. The implications of this story are significant. First, it confirms that Havana Syndrome is a real phenomenon that has affected hundreds of U.S. government employees and their family members. Second, it suggests that Russia may be responsible for the attacks, as Andrews was targeted while he was working on a secret program to counter Russian intelligence operations. Third, it raises concerns about the safety of U.S. intelligence officers and their families who are increasingly targeted by foreign adversaries. And then they go on to give examples of like the Manchurian Candidate, and they also bring up the Born Identity film series. So apparently some of that might be real. And it reminds me, uh, I guess it was back a couple of years ago on NBC, a question about, I think it was like, what will happen in the year 2023? I think it was an end of the year segment where they were talking about uh, military and just general news stories that have to do with the government. One of the guys said, I think we will find out what is behind one of two things, UFOs or Havana syndrome. Yeah, there's some sort of connection here with psychotronics or neuroweapons and the phenomenon. I agree. This all harkens back to uh, that army doctor, Andrea Puharik. Uri Geller claims that that guy, Andrea Puharik, is the inspiration for Papa, the character in Stranger Things. This guy had his own like little school. I think it was in Ossining, New York. I still don't know. I've tried to read more about this. There's books where Puharik's talked about it a few times, but like it's really hard to figure out what exactly was going on at this guy's school. One book claims that Puharik says that kids were arriving at this school by teleportation. They're doing remote viewing of the White House and the Kremlin. I always was like, okay, well, this would be a cool comic book. Like we can laugh at that all we want, but like think back to Andrea Puharik being the guy that had Edgar Mitchell call Uri Geller to convince him to come to the U.S. to get tested under laboratory conditions. That was in 1973. These guys that we're talking about, Andrea Puharik, Edgar Mitchell, Hal Putoff, Russell Targ, like all of these individuals are interested in consciousness. They're also strangely interested in like space. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting the crossover there. This actually reminded me uh, where they talk about the CIA doctor in the Scott Andrews story, who I guess helps him kind of figure out what's going on. It at least sounds like someone like Kit Green, right? Kit Green was a CIA doctor who worked on this stuff. He worked on Havana Syndrome with Gary Nolan, kind of been in the remote viewing UFO lore 
for a while. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I could say that he, he's a good guy. There's this other article in the Daily Mail that came out some years ago. Yeah, April 2022. So not that long ago. And they asked him about Havana syndrome. And it kind of makes me think because Lou vouched for the Scott Andrews book that's coming out. Like when it was announced, a lot of people were like, oh, this is so ridiculous. Like, sounds like bullshit. And then Lou like quote tweeted the article that announced the book was coming out. And he said he vouched for the story, like 100%. And I was like, wow, that, that really lends credibility to it. And the fact that there's a CIA doctor in that story studying what sounds an awful lot like what Kit Green was studying with Gary Nolan, it made me think of this Daily Mail article. And this article went completely under the radar. Like there's some bonkers shit in here. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple quotes from it. So Kit Green wrote a paper back in 2010 for OSAP, which was the government's UFO program, which they actually admitted was a UFO program in the recent uh, DOD IG report. These were called Defense Intelligence Reference Documents. This was basically a report about the medical effects of military service members who got too close to what they called you know, anomalous aerospace vehicles. So this is where the connection with UFOs and Havana Syndrome first started coming to light was when we found out that Kit Green and Gary Nolan were working on Havana Syndrome and also looking at the brains of experiencers who had gotten too close to these crafts. So he did write a paper called Anomalous Acute and Subacute Field Effects on Human Biological Tissues. So the people who came into contact with UFOs had very, very similar symptoms to those who reportedly had Havana Syndrome. So that's where the connection is. The article says, Dr. Green wrote that the injuries to humans from getting too close to UFOs could give clues as to how the strange craft work, including hypotheses about how they use strong electromagnetic fields for propulsion. Uh, the purpose of this paper is to argue that data exists to reverse engineer propulsion systems of anomalous aerospace vehicles. And Kit Green is kind of known for not thinking UFOs are UFOs. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks they are, but he, is, he does not think they're aliens. Uh, because I'm a forensic neurologist and a brain imager, I'm the go-to physician in the Department of Defense for unexplained morbidity and mortality. I do look at injuries from mortality from unidentified UAPs. My client population is heavily within Intelligence Department of Defense, Special Forces, and people that work under contract for aerospace companies that get ill and they don't know why. What my cases are exposed to are things they see in daylight with witnesses under battle conditions and circumstances of tests and evaluation at advanced facilities. Green said many of his patients experienced burns and brain damage from their encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena. He listed his patients' varied descriptions of getting up close to a big drone or a silent drone or something even stranger. Uh, he says sometimes they hovered, sometimes they moved in odd ways. Some did show clear advanced cloaking. Some did show emanations of funny lights, patterns, and strobes. There are a lot of things that will instantly disappear and then instantly appear close by, but in another angle of sight. In the blink of an eye, it will not appear to be directly ahead of you, but will appear to be 30 degrees to the right or 30 degrees to the left. Some of them did come close and it made them become unconscious and they woke up burned or injured. Green said that one in 10 of his patients died within seven years of their reported encounter. A small percentage of the professor's patients even said they encountered, quote, something cloaked that was a human being. So that sounds kind of like shadow people. He said he was even aware of injuries from encounters with UFOs, quote, near the White House and over the Capitol Mall, though he said he had not personally treated any of those cases and declined to comment further. 
wild. <laughs> Damn, dude. Any of the cases like that freak me out. Yeah. Near the White House and over the Capitol Mall. Like, how is that not the biggest fucking story in the world? <laughs> like, there are, UFO, there are people being injured by UFOs at the Capitol. That's fucking nuts. How does that happen? I'm not saying it's justified for them to not put these things in the headlines of our news. No, you're right. I can see how inflammatory this topic could be, especially if it wasn't even an alien. Imagine just in that brief amount of time when like news is really, really ripe and like people do want to talk about a topic or an event that happened. But like, what if they truly just don't know what happened yet? Another country or uh, God forbid, an enemy country that wants to do us harm could absolutely take this topic and make people i think you catch what i'm trying to say like yeah i think that's where that this is kind of heading is you know some of the stuff is going to be psychotronic weapons whatever that means I, I think what they're talking about here is probably some sort of um electromagnetic hallucination inducing weapon that makes people see this stuff you know just because he's saying that there have been reports of this doesn't necessarily mean there were physical crafts but yeah we should check out the uh edgar mitchell paper before we go any deeper into another fucking tangent it is my opinion that quantum non-locality is a major key to the scientific puzzles plaguing quantum theory and relativity. Dismissed for most of this century as a curious artifact of subatomic particle interaction, non-locality is beginning to emerge as an important phenomenon. The impediment has been the speed limit imposed by special relativity and the erroneous belief that non-local information was not recoverable. The non-local quantum hologram has been discovered experimentally. The gravitron has not, but its effects are universally recognized. Both require very, very fast propagation, if not instantaneous simultaneity. Gravitation holds the universe together. The quantum hologram helps itself organize. It is likely that resolving the mechanics of non-locality will finally resolve conflicts between theories of the very, very small, the very, very fast, and the very, very large, and will allow information and consciousness to be recognized as the flip side of energy, and as important as matter in the organization of the cosmos. In a little-known report, records the experiences of two Russian cosmonauts living aboard the Mir spacecraft for six months. Their concerns about official reaction to the experience requires their anonymity. I cite the report in this paper because the quantum hologram discussed in several papers at this conference offers a valid explanation for the unusual experiences of the cosmonauts. They each, but not simultaneously, experienced dream and waking states featuring extraordinary perceptions. They also experienced distorted time perception during these events. The cosmonauts frequently perceived themselves as other creatures on Earth, including dinosaurs, other humans, and extraterrestrials. They discussed these experiences in great detail, including hearing voices, instructions, and precognitive predictions about their spacecraft's future problems, which were all subsequently fulfilled. What? They experienced these events as though the information originated outside themselves. With good reason, they could not report these events to their controllers, nor to the medical monitors for fear of mental disqualification and loss of flight status. 
Only the quantum hologram permits a framework to explain these events within the context of science without resorting to hallucination and mental dysfunction. Most astronauts and cosmonauts had a heightened awareness and profound insights during prolonged space experiences. Though discussed privately, but seldom reported officially, these experiences must now be considered in the context of long-duration space voyages. The book The Home Planet provides only an intriguing taste of these experiences in its brief captions to the inspiring photographs. For the purposes of this paper, I raise the question, does the quantum hologram and non-locality offer a new avenue for research into alternative communication for space travel? Alcubierre with the warp drive, Van Flandern with astrophysical measurements, and Haish, Ruida, Hudoff with zero-point field theory have raised serious and vital questions about the validity of certain quantum and relativistic interpretations. Non-local information has been considered a useless curiosity, except to entangled particles for most of this century. It now appears to be the basis for our most personal experience, subjectivity. Damn. So what does going to space do to you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he did conduct like a psi experiment, right? Do you know the specifics of that? My understanding is that it was like a group of four individuals did an experiment with Mitchell during Apollo 14 from Earth. The first time I heard this story of Ed Mitchell doing an experiment with a psychic, I looked it up and I was like, okay, it was psychics that I had never heard of before. And then one time I heard that dude, Jason Giorgiani, who used to come on Jeffrey Mishlove's show all the time. I heard him say he did these tests with Ingo Swan and that Ingo Swan was one of the individuals that was doing these telepathy tests in that group of four with Mitchell. But if you look it up, my understanding is that like it's still secret. This is New York Times, June 22nd, 1971. Astronaut tells of ESP tests. Captain Edgar Mitchell the astronaut said today that four persons on Earth participated in the extrasensory perception experiment he conducted during the Apollo 14 flight to the moon early in February. He said he had used 25 numbered cards in the experiment in which he attempted to send a thought message to the four persons as to what the symbol on each card was. He said two of the four got 51 of the 200 correct and the other two were less successful. The space agency confirmed after the flight that the astronaut had carried out the experiments during his rest periods, but said it was a personal experiment without sanction of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Captain Mitchell said at a news conference that he had chosen the four in a dinner table conversation, but he did not identify them. However, a Chicago area psychic, Olaf Johnson, has said he participated. Captain Mitchell, a Navy officer, said the cards had included five each with stars, crosses, waves, squares, and circles. He said he had made a random shuffle of the deck before blasting off to obtain a list of the sequence in which they appeared. Then, during four rest periods in the moon flight, he reshuffled the deck to obtain a new sequence. Using the second series of numbers as a guide, he concentrated on each card as it appeared. He said that he had told the four other participants that he would try the experiment on six specific occasions, but that he could find the necessary 20 minutes or less on only four occasions. 
Two of the four recipients whose score was highest got 51 correct answers of the 200 guesses, he said. Chance would have meant only 40 correct, he added. This is an acceptable, significant result in the other sciences, but parapsychology is more conservative and considers such odds as only suggestive or extra chance performance, he said. Captain Mitchell said he had been interested in ESP for a long time and planned to conduct similar future experiments. We're much too uninformed, unknowledgeable in this mechanism of telepathy or ESP to project its uses, but I think once we start to understand what the mechanism is, then we can start talking about uses, he said. His own ESP experiments during space travel produced results far exceeding anything expected, he asserted, but scientifically, they were only, quote, moderately significant. The astronaut was in Durham to analyze the results of his tests with Dr. J.B. Rhine, head of the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man, and that's 1971. So my understanding is that that article is the only time they ever said anyone's name was the Olaf guy. I've heard that story told, and they've mentioned Ingo Swan as being one of the psychics that was participating in it. But I've never gotten that for sure uh, figured out. But I will say, if you look back into those 1973 tests at SRI, which there's videos of, of Uri Geller uh, doing these tests with Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, Edgar Mitchell's there. And we found out in later years, the CIA was interested in these experiments. Who's the other guy? Brendan O'Regan, I think his name is. Apparently that guy was close friend of Mitchell, if I have that correct. And he was also president of these tests. It's a good question, though. What happens in uh, our brains in space? And before we forget about it, I want to talk about these Russians and what happened to them. Yeah, so they were aboard the spacecraft for six months, and they had these experiences. I guess Mitchell is saying that this is some sort of proof of non-local information in the quantum hologram. And the hologram idea is, like, all the information is on this 2D surface somewhere, theoretical, and that information is being projected Usually the idea is from, from a black hole. It is somehow being projected into a 3D reality that we experience. So that, and all that information is quantum information. So if you know how a hologram works, it's, it's very similar. So I just want to get your thoughts on this part where they said, uh, experience distorted time perception during these events. And they frequently perceive themselves as other creatures from Earth, including dinosaurs, other humans, and extraterrestrials. First of all, if this is like real and this is some sort of consciousness that they're experiencing, kind of like John Malkovich. I don't know if you've seen that movie being John Malkovich, but uh, people can basically like possess this guy's mind. This seems kind of similar to that in the sense that they're seeing themselves as these other beings. And the fact that they include dinosaurs there, that makes me wonder if uh, they were tuned into the same frequency we are. Were they the main uh, consciousness being on the earth at their time? You know what I mean? I feel like I was, <laughs> I want to like, <laughs> this is how I picture it. When guys go into outer space, just based yeah. on the way Mitchell and other astronauts have described it, I feel like our brains or just our nervous systems in general, like think about all of our nerves, our fingertips, our sense of touch, taste, like everything. 
the how we perceive reality. It's like a filter and every living organism has their own differently evolved nervous system slash filter to perceive reality. It's all still reality, but it's going to be different experiences like inherently for yeah. each different set. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that when you go into space, your filter gets fucking discombobulated. I almost feel like the way people describe out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, I should say. I think that going in a rocket ship, when I try to put myself in that situation mentally, I bet you it induces a near-death experience almost. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. so dangerous and high risk and intense that I bet you your brain goes into that state. And maybe not every time for every astronaut, I'm sure. But like, by and large, I bet your brain is more likely to have this experience. But I had uh, the way of the explorer in front of me. And I had the part where he explains what samadhi is. Here we go. I suspected modern research could be useful in revealing methods whereby years of ascetic discipline required by traditional mystery schools could be abridged and made available to more people. In looking for a kind of shortcut, there were also traps. At the time, the use of recreational hallucinogens was popular among young people. Although such drugs have been used for millennia by shamans of various cultures, I knew this was such a dead end. The risks were far too great and the benefits dubious unless the experiments were conducted under rigorous control. Perhaps the most thorough and detailed mapping of inner experience comes from the Buddhist and Hindu mystics. The Tibetan Buddhist monks in particular have approached the subject with scholarly intent and precision for centuries. The most exalted state of awareness is described in the mystical literature as the Nirvikalpa Samadhi, a name derived from the ancient Sanskrit. This is a state of awareness in which there is only self. There are no thoughts or objects in mind. Indeed, self is expanded and merged into the entire field of mind so that pure awareness is all that appears to exist. The state is accompanied by an ecstasy that seems to permeate every cell of one's body and results in a feeling of certainty about the eternal nature of self. Beyond this simple description, the state is ineffable, which is to say the description falls short and doesn't assist others in attaining it, although it does help one recognize the experience when and if it occurs. In Christian literature, the phrase, the peace that passes all understanding, is often used to imply the ineffable character of the inner experience. The theological meaning often given to this samadhi state is that of union with the Godhead, or, to use Paul Tillich's phrase, union with the ground of our being. I would suggest, however, that the meaning assigned is not inherent in the experience, but rather is the result of attempting to describe the experience in accordance with one's theological beliefs. We do not, quote, see God in such an experience, nor do we experience union with God, unless we are already predisposed to expect that this is what the experience means. That's Mitchell, right? From that book? Yeah, this is that was from The Way of the Explorer. Yeah, you're asking what happens when people go to space and uh, actual like physical journey on space shuttle or something like that. And But this reminds me of a, a tweet I made that Tom DeLonge stole from me and put on his Instagram. Did he erase half the words of it and alter what you said? <laughs> no. 
Oh, nice. <laughs> Sounds like a cool guy. Yeah, he's, he's legit. Not the fucking Stephen Green Street. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I tweeted out this thing. It was a CIA document. You know how Tom, Tom loves the CIA documents. I tweeted it out and he screenshotted it and put it on Instagram. And I'll, I'll read you what he said after I read the paper, but it's uh, really interesting. And it was written by two uh, psychologists that were conducting a study. So the paper says, this is in the CIA reading room. My thought is that potentially what is happening when these astronauts go to space and they have all this kind of psychic stuff going on, at least as described in Edgar Mitchell's case and in his paper that we just read, I think it, it might have to do with gravity. So in this paper, they say, the model is presented in the form of a series of related postulates that we believe comprise the theoretical structure within which the workings of psychic energy can be understood and intentionally modified or directed. So these are the postulates. Yeah, this is what Tom took and put on on Instagram. So here we go. Um, Here are the postulates. One, each individual is a psychic energy system comprising his or her mind and psychic energy field. Two, each individual's psychic energy system is in continuous inductive interaction with all other psychic energy systems. Three, this inductive process which occurs within the unconscious mind is the input or source of psychic energy for the individual's psychic system. Four, the induced psychic energy then flows through the system of the individual, entering the conscious mind as the stream of consciousness. Five, consciousness is the individual's experience of the flow of psychic energy through his or her system. Six, psychic energy leaves, i.e. is radiated from the system as the expressive activities of being. Seven, the greater the throughput of psychic energy, the greater the inductive effect of the individual psychic energy field. Eight, the direction of energy flow within an individual system is determined by his or her psychological set. Nine, rejection cuts energy flow and pain turns the energy flow inward towards the site of pain, reversing the polarity in part of the system. This reversed energy cannot flow against the current of induced energy, but it prevents further input from the blocked areas. So this is where that whole like gravity thought I had uh, kind of comes in. 10. Positively and negatively charged forms of psychic energy result from the different directions or polarities of psychic energy within the individual's psychic system. 11. Positively charged and negatively charged forms of psychic energy operate in opposed fashion and absorb each other within the individual's psychic system. 12. Positively charged psychic energy has a levitational effect upon the level of consciousness and mood and induces itself as feelings of well-being and acceptance. 13. Negative psychic energy has a gravitational effect upon level of consciousness and mood and induces itself as feelings of discomfort and rejection. 14. Group psychic energy fields comprise the combined induction effects of all their constituent individual fields and the inductive interactions between them. But uh, yeah, that idea of um, negative psychic energy having a gravitational effect upon you know whatever level of consciousness means is... It's kind of where I was going with this. This is what this is what Tom said when he posted it on Instagram. He said, uh, "You are a transducer. Consciousness flows through you. When you think negative thoughts, the energy switches polarity and then goes inward to create pain, discomfort, rejection. When you think positive thoughts, consciousness flows not only through you but outward, creating a levitation effect that feels weightless and uplifting." When a group of people get together and focus their positive thoughts and their intention, it has an amplification effect and can direct matter and change other psychic fields, thus change the world. So he, I guess this really resonated with him. He talks about that all the time where, you know, you create your own reality, basically. 
I mean, this sounds like all like fucking new age and shit, but uh, I think it's interesting in the context of Edgar Mitchell's idea. And if if this thing is real with the, with the Russian cosmonauts or whatever, I guess maybe having a higher level of consciousness or, you know, less gravitational effect on consciousness might allow these kinds of things to to happen. You're saying that having less of an effect from gravity is going to alter you biologically, possibly? Yeah, like the whole like biofield idea. There's so many charlatans in this shit that it's really hard to take seriously a lot of the time. But when you have like a former astronaut, you know, saying this shit and, you know, actually putting forth serious scientific theories of like the quantum hologram and how that could explain a lot of this and just the general like idea of the holographic universe and the information being non-local and us being you know transducers uh, it all kind of ties in yeah it does what you're saying about astronauts is like spot on one one astronaut named james Irwin. i don't know if you're familiar with this guy i'm not he was an apollo 15 astronaut so he walked on the moon and when he came back to earth he became like this born-again christian there it is again <laughs> obsessed <laughs> with uh searching for noah's ark was i think his like big thing that he wanted to do when he got back to earth it's it is a topic it's not just confined to edgar mitchell although yeah. it can be a, a little different obviously this guy was a little more christian than mitchell but like the trend is still there these people are changed profoundly by their experience what could be on the moon that made him want to go by noah's ark it sounds so similar to the thing we talked about last week where the guy at lockheed became christian after years of rejecting religion because of whatever he learned there made him feel like he had to start going to church i guess <laughs> so I don't know, man. It's just interesting when like super scientific people like start believing in stuff. What was the one I sent you a while back of uh, J. Allen Hynek? It was Jacques Vallée talking about J. Allen Hynek and how like as he grew older in his career, he started to get more interested in things like hermeticism. The information that he was putting out and you start at the beginning of his career and then like go all the way into the end. He's a very interesting individual because he goes from all prosaic explanations to like, in my opinion, like be of service to humanity and trying to figure out some of these big questions. There's another article from the CIA reading room about um, another NASA. This is a NASA director who made some actual citations of Andrea Puharic in a speech he gave during a, a space conference. His name was Dr. Eugene B. Konechi. He was director of biotechnology and human research in the Office of Advanced Research and Technology at NASA. And while he was that director, he went and gave a presentation at a International Astronautics Federation. Yeah, back in 1963. He did cite Andrea Puharic in one of his theories. And this also ties in with the Soviets, because this is obviously, you know, around the time that there was competition and they were, each country was trying to figure out what the other was studying. So this Dr. Konechi, the, uh, one of the NASA directors said, um, a concerted effort directed toward a highly interesting problem in modern science, the nature and essence of certain phenomena of electromagnetic communication between living organisms is reportedly being pursued with top priority under the Soviet manned space program. The speaker then referred to work undertaken by an American researcher, Dr. Andrea Puharic, who, he said, was validly experimenting with telepathic phenomena for the why, what, where, who, and when answers. 
Dr. Kanechi said Puharik had indicated that perhaps some of the most critical experiments could be performed with man in space and under conditions where gravity-free conditions could be maintained for long periods. So that, that also kind of ties in with the idea that um, gravity can affect, I don't know, consciousness, I guess. <laughs> he added, for example, in the region of space between Earth and the moon, the U.S. finds a null gravitational point where the respective attractions of the moon and the earth are approximately equal. A manned orbital laboratory could be an ideal platform from which to conduct experiments in quote-unquote energy transfer, detailing possible telepathy experiments on a man-made satellite in outer space. Dr. Kenechi said, quote, In this case, the human receiver would be in the space platform, and the sender on earth would be subjected to high gravitational force conditions. Under these circumstances, Puharik stated, the U.S. would expect to find the most remarkable increase in, quote, thought transference or interaction of energy transfers for communication techniques between humans and or flight control systems. What year is that? It's uh, 1963. God damn. Uh, Dr. Kanechi's talk at the meeting of the International Astronautic Federation covered many aspects of his international activities in bioastronautics. He described it as an attempt to portray the peaceful but prime interests, efforts, and achievements of the USSR and the USSA, uh, USSA. <laughs> yeah. of the USSR and the USA, thereby stimulating many other participating countries towards major challenges and significant tasks remaining for extended manned space flight. He said the space accomplishments to date give factual evidence of the needs, the rewards, and the vital communications so necessary for the valid and successful exploration and exploitation of space by man. And this is where we get kind of into the idea of non-locality and ORCOR. He finished his remarks by saying, in general, some of the experimentations as conducted or planned in the USSR, the USA, and other countries are not necessarily new. The phenomena represented throughout all their efforts for validation does exist in nature. What is and will be new is the quantitative approach to the problem areas. The precision and authenticity with which each researcher, wherever he may be, carries out his experimentation will determine the success of research with respect to the formulation of laws for energy transfer, general information theory, allergic power, and action at a distance on material systems. That's nuts, man. So the director of uh, biotechnology and human research of NASA in 1963 was talking about telepathic communication between people in space and people on Earth and how that might be an actual way to test this stuff. What the hell? Yeah. And this is 10 years after. For those who aren't familiar, Andrea Puharik, this is the guy who held the seance in Maine in 1953. Exactly. Yep. And that was 10 years before and he was in public talking about a group of extraterrestrials that have made contact with human beings and that like he had a special way of communicating with them. This man is being mentioned seriously for years and years after this. And he was, this, uh, according to Annie Jacobson, was uh, associated with MK Ultra. What is going on? God, it sucks that it's so like secretive and, and dark. And occulted, I guess, that's the word to use. Uh, it's just hidden. It's in the shadows. It's very prevalent among like space engineers and you know space technology companies. And but it seems to be like very hidden. I don't know the stigma with parapsychology 
and any of this stuff, it seems like it's not even a problem in these programs. Uh, it's so weird. It seems like an open secret in the space programs. That, it's bizarre. Kenechi also said, uh, well, the U.S. understands that the Soviet researchers under the sponsorship of their Academy of Sciences have established at least eight known research centers specializing with the phenomena of energy transfer. So energy transfer is telepathy, just to make that clear. All on an academic scientific level, the researcher's responsibility is to investigate, find out how it works, and devise means of practical application. If the results of conducted experiments are half as good as some claim, then they may be the first to put human thought into orbit or achieve mind-to-mind -mind communication with humans on the moon. The Soviets further concede that their approaches have to be physiological, not psychological, and using everything from electronic apparatus to cybernetical methods and techniques to probe and control such brain-mind mysteries as energy transfer phenomena or biological radio communication. Sound familiar? It's literally yeah. fucking John Keel. Like, what? <laughs> John Keel wasn't just making this shit up. This is literally what the director of NASA's uh, biotechnology department was saying at international space conferences. It's nuts. He'll, you know I'm like his biggest fan. Um, one of the interesting guys that he props up in his book is a guy named uh, Sir Victor Goddard. I've tweeted this quote before. It was Royal Air Force? Yeah. Senior commander of the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. Damn. Okay, so this dude, John Keel, has quoted in his book, and this is the quote. He says, The astral world of illusion which on psychical evidence is greatly inhabited by illusion-prone spirits, is well known for its multifarious imaginative activities and exhortations. Seemingly, some of its denizens are eager to exemplify principalities and powers. Others pronounce upon morality, spirituality, deity, etc. All of these astral exponents who invoke human consciousness may be sincere, but many of these may be framed to propagate some special phantasm, perhaps of an earlier incarnation, or to indulge inveterate and continuing technological urge toward materialistic progress, or simply to astonish and disturb the gullible for the devil of it. Brutal. Yeah. To me, it's just fascinating how like people in very high positions were taking these topics seriously. As much as they wanted to like downplay a lot of these scenarios, Heal did a really good job of compiling famous World War II guys and just military officials in general. NORAD officials talked to like spokespeople for Project Blue Book when it came to like uh, an article he had written about the men in black. He was the man. It, it shows you a lot that people today are recommending his work, like Jim Semivan and Gary Nolan have recommended John Keel's books now. Yep. And I find that very fascinating. While uh, I can't tell you how many books on UFOs there are, but the fact that we have guys from Stanford University and the Central Intelligence Agency saying, hey, this guy, John Keel, who writes books about UFOs and consciousness and human history, he maybe people should take a second look into his books. That's one of the reasons why I picked his books up first was because these important people were pointing to them and saying that, like, he was a real deal. Tom DeLong even recommended it. Yeah, I think Jim Semivan, like, brings up Keel in every interview, pretty much. Yeah, he for sure is a <laughs> he big really fan. Does. 
Because that makes sense to him from his experience. I mean, if you listen to Semi Van's experiences with the phenomenon, you know, the kind of creepy, like super intense shit that he's had to deal with, like seeing figures in his room with his wife. I think they're part of the experiencer study that Kit Green and Gary Nolan were doing. I think he said that, where they called it like interference syndrome. <laughs> Interesting name. I guess there's like Havana syndrome and then what they called interference syndrome. When you first hear the, the term interference syndrome, it sounds like something is like interfering with, I don't know, the way your brain works or, or something like that. To me, uh, just thinking about it a little more, it really makes sense that it would be uh, waves, like, you know, interference patterns, like with the um, double slit experiment. You know, when like two waves meet traveling along the same medium, that creates an interference pattern. That's what they mean when they say the uh, collapse of the wave function, right? When something is observed, then it becomes like determined. Yeah, or measured, yeah. That's still real difficult. (laughs) I know, these concepts, dude. It's almost like it's meant to be beyond human understanding, you know? It's it's so out, out there. But it works mathematically, so we still use it. Yeah, it's hard to conceptualize a lot of this stuff. You know, how is an electron in all these places at once? So there is a different theory, I guess, that um, Diana Pasolka comes up with, where the you know the shift in consciousness in astronauts doesn't really have to do with gravity. Is this in her new book, Encounters? Yeah, this is in her new book, Encounters. She says, being weightless, I learned, was the least traumatic experience astronauts face while traveling in space. Approximately 600 astronauts have left Earth's atmosphere and from this new vantage point have gazed back at their home planet. No other group of people in human history have had this view. This literal shift in worldview is often accompanied by shock, awe, dread, and sometimes trauma and personal transformation. To see Earth as a blue globe suspended in a black backdrop of what appears to be infinite space in every direction engenders a lot of different emotions. This novel consciousness, which astronauts find difficult to describe, requires a new vocabulary or requires the remembrance of a lost vocabulary. Some of the terms that have been used to describe these new mental states are found in the history of religions. When astronaut Edgar Mitchell saw Earth from his tiny capsule floating through space, his mental state altered so much it changed his life and its direction. He returned to Earth determined to find an explanation for his palpably electrifying experience. His search was not easy, but he finally found that the only thing that came close to a description was the ecstatic experience illustrated in Hindu and Buddhist sacred texts called, yeah, Samadhi. Diana Pasolka talks about her friend, Aya Whiteley, who is a astronaut psychologist. And that's a really interesting perspective to have because she is the one who actually gets to talk to these, these people on a very, very deep level and get their actual you know, thoughts and feelings and their experiences while they're in space. I think it's interesting in the context of what we're talking about. So she says, Aya studied psychology and computer science, the novel field of study called cognitive engineering, putting together complex information into electronic displays for modern aircrafts. Among her other tasks, using voice analysis technology that she co-invented, is to provide early detection of fatigue and to monitor the well-being of astronauts in extreme environments. She explained that as astronauts would get farther and farther from the Earth, they would form their own rules, beliefs, and behaviors, and at times, without any discussion, would form an understanding of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. These rules and behaviors could drastically differ from those of the society they had left behind. Mission control and people on the ground might find these new rules and behaviors shocking and unacceptable. 
but given the surrounding circumstances, it would be natural to transition to these new rules. I wonder how far you have to go to feel that. I don't know. It's weird. You think it's only the moon? There's all these billionaire people going up and like, they're still assholes when they come back. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Building bunkers. Yeah. The examples we were touching on, like the Noah's Ark guy and Edgar Mitchell were both Apollo, like moon mission astronauts. So I wonder if there's like some barrier that the Apollo astronauts were breaking through to feel this. Or there's something on the moon. Or there's something on the moon. Or some effect. The moon is shrinking, by the way. I just found out. What do you mean shrinking? Like shrinking? Like the Antarctic ice sheet is shrinking? Sure. (laughs) Like alarmingly fast? What do you mean? No, like over a time scale of, I don't know, 150 million years, it shrinks like a foot or something. I don't know. Did you know that there's two moons on Mars and one of them has a monolith on it. On Mars? On the moon. Well, two moons. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be. There's two moons orbiting Mars, I should say. Got it. One of them, the smaller of the two, is a potato-shaped a puny moon called Phobos. <laughs> or Phobos. Yeah. And in an old C-SPAN interview, Buzz Aldrin said that there's a monolith on this moon. And when I was reading about this particular moon on Mars, or moon of Mars, <laughs> when I was reading about this <laughs> moon on Mars, when I was reading about this particular moon of Mars, it said that eventually this moon is going to just crash into the planet, and it's just going to be sucked into Mars's gravitational field. And like every year that passes, it slowly and slowly gets a few inches closer to the planet. And eventually it's just going to be one moon. Makes me think of uh, time scales, right? And perception of time. Like there isn't really time, you know? It's just our perception of it. All this stuff could be happening crazy fast. You know, I, I like I think of um, a time-lapse photo. If you ever look at a time-lapse photo of a plant, it looks like it's like alive. Like it looks like it's moving and it's doing all this stuff. Maybe if you have the same time perception as the plant, like imagine plants moving around like that in real time, like the same as they do in a time-lapse photo on a galactic scale, like what that would look like. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think of the example with the microbe and how a microbe perceives any of the things that we're trying to discuss is like it's a whole other universe of perception. Furniture of the earth, but really we're just moving on our own timeline. So do you think that some of this shit is outside of time? Like how does that even work? Time isn't really a thing. It's really just like the changes in matter. I think Elizondo has talked about it, like where he says, imagine you just popped out into space. Like you would have no frame of reference where anything is, you would have no idea how big you are, how much time has passed, you know, because there's no like rotation of, of the earth around the sun and shit like that. I don't know. We just use time on earth because it helps us like comprehend our reality. It's, right. It's almost like a byproduct of having a nervous system like we do, is that we have to deal with time. <laughs> yeah. And the cycles of our environment. Yeah. I don't really have anything new. I, I'll be writing an article soon. Yeah, it should be out in a week or so. Right, once again, I want to thank everyone who supports our Patreon, covers the costs of this hosting and you know Zoom and all that stuff. So makes it a lot easier to uh, edit and do all this stuff that, that helps us get this out. Uh, a lot of appreciation for that. There's a couple 
unaired episodes that I, I still want to get out for uh, people who support us on Patreon. So, so I'm going to make that a priority, uh, hopefully this week. That's all I got. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's a lot of stuff packed in there. Next week should also be pretty packed. Uh, hopefully the, the Soul Conference videos come out soon and we can kind of go over those. But uh, yeah, that should be it for this week. And uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.